Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Good morning, and welcome to Capital Club Radio. Today, we've got a very interesting guest, Mike Boyle, a man of many skills, many gifts, and in many industries. He's also a rising leader in the debt buying world. He started and built his own debt buying company. He sold it to a larger debt buyer and became an owner and partner in the consolidated, fast-growing company now called Diverse Funding Associates. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me, Michael. Prior to Diverse, Mike was founder of c Acquisitions, a debt buyer focused on asset purchases in the healthcare space. He started the company while he was an account executive at EMC Corporation. At EMC, Mike was selling data center and infrastructure services to hospitals and law firms. Mike developed his knowledge and appreciation for technology while working in sales at Systems Alliance, where he sold technology solutions to the university marketplace. He learned financial analysis skills at Partners First Holdings, where he managed the financial aspect of its outsourcing relationship with FDR, First Data. He also learned something about advertising when he started his career at NBNA, where he managed advertising jobs, including the launch of the Platinum Card. Mike was the first in his family to graduate from college. He got both a bachelor's degree in business administration and marketing and also an MBA in finance from Loyola College in Maryland. Mike, at first blush, you appear to be a man for all seasons with financial, marketing, and technology experience in banking, technology, and finance companies. That's pretty, pardon the pun, it's pretty diverse. Well, it's uh, maybe a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, so uh, kind of a generalist. Well, sometimes that's important. As a kid, though, what did you, I mean, what was your aspiration? What were you, what did you dream about becoming? Um, I always wanted, my dad at one point had a trucking company and, um, and delivered home heating oil, and I wanted to be in business, and I wanted something with large equipment and trucks. I've always... <laughs> trucks, okay. Uh, yeah, so real sophisticated. Okay. Uh, if it was big and made noise, I liked it. Uh-huh. So I haven't gotten there yet, and uh, maybe that'll be the next chapter, but, um, but uh, my, my dad is one of six kids, my mom one of eight, everyone in small business in okay. and around our community, which okay. is northeast of Baltimore, a town called Bel Air, Maryland, uh-huh. in Hartford County. So um, my dad's family, largely in the car business, they had for a long time a Buick dealership, now Buick GMC, that just celebrated its 50-year anniversary. Okay. And uh, my mom's family, um, my uh, grandfather was in the logging business. So logging, um, okay. logging and, and, um, and timber business. And uh, now my uncle and cousin still are active there and own and operate a sawmill. I have another uh, cousin, and uh, he's in the environmental services world, does a lot of land clearing. And, and, um, and uh, it's much more regulated today than back in the day when, the, when they were doing it with stormwater runoff issues, et cetera. So the whole forestry industry has really mm-hmm. grown and evolved. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it, it, uh, both sides of my family, all small business and, um, and close to home. So it, it was, you know, I kind of just figured I would do something, um, uh, you know, and I never really had any grand plan. So there's some kind of uh, entrepreneurial gene in your family, uh, I guess on both sides of your family. Entrepreneurial, maybe, you know, uh, a little bit of independence. Uh-huh. And, um, uh-huh. and uh, that independent streak probably as much as the entrepreneurial streak. Uh-huh. 
entrepreneurial plus independence. Well, wh- why didn't you go into one of your parents or your grandparents' businesses? I mean, because they're already established, and you, you like trucks, so car dealership. I mean, why it, didn't you go into your dad's business? So the, the car business was um, uh, family-run, and, and um, my dad actually was independent. He's he's now wholesaled cars, and okay. um, he does a lot of work with his brothers, but doesn't work in the family business per se. So, um, you know, when I looked at, at coming out of school 20 years ago, uh, at the family business, there were only so many good jobs in a family-run car business. They were all taken, right. and by guys that weren't my dad. So right. it was like, well, you know, <laughs> this looks like it might be a tough uh, uh, right. road to hoe. Right. And um, and so actually, through my high school and college careers, I worked for my mom's brothers mm-hmm. at their small hardware store, mm-hmm. and I that's probably the best job I ever had. I learned more there day to day than in a I small still, hardware store. In a small hardware store, hardwood floors. Okay, um, and uh, and uh, really a great a great uh, experience, and uh, learned more life lessons and more practical how to do things there than any other job I've had. Give uh, give our listeners some examples of life lessons in a hardware store. So um, the area, it's in Jarrettsville, Maryland. It's called Smith Hardware. Mm -hmm. And... um, they are. They've been there about forty years now, and um, but the area is notorious for hard water, and it's hell on plumbing. So any type of metal pli- pipes, um, uh-huh. bathroom fixtures, right. you know, it, it over time they corrode and fall apart. Right. So you know, you, you typically the the way a uh, um, plumbing guy would come in, someone do it yourself or trying to figure out what he's doing, he would pull apart one part. Well, then he'd break the next part up the line. Mm-hmm. So usually by the second or third trip, he had finally gotten to a point where he had a clean break and he could start replacing and repairing but this was an iterative thing okay and um so uh you know what i learned was that not only did you have to look at and figure out what he was holding in his hand but two three steps up the ladder from that or you know further closer to the source right to be able to tell and and help him or her through whatever uh plumbing challenges he was having so it was a chain of solutions so it, it was yeah. that and just kind of having an awareness of what that guy or girl was dealing with uh-huh. in addition to what you were seeing uh-huh. and um as trivial as, as that sounds you know that's certainly something i've tried to bring to whatever career i'm in right. and deal not only with with uh what i've got in front of me right but with with what you know, that person on the other side of the table may have uh-huh. you know, kind of behind the scenes, uh-huh. and um, so the uh, you know thinking on your feet, doing that stuff um, was uh, was um, was you know challenging. It, it, it sounds silly, but uh, you know some of these guys were a little less than capable. So trying to you know right. handhold someone and talk him or her through right. um, their challenges, mm-hmm. and uh, you know trying to coach the uncoachable at times. Certainly, uh, you can't really tell the guy, "Look, you idiot, do it this way." Right. And uh, so right. it forced a little diplomacy as well. So, uh-huh. um, so believe it or not, the hardware store actually uh, uh, was my first job, and uh, I was there for eight years, uh, part time through school. Eight years, wow! Mm-hmm. In the afternoon. Afternoons, afternoons yeah. and, and uh, during my college years, I commuted. It was okay. close enough, and um, okay. and so I kind of they were very always very flexible with my schedule, right? And um, so it uh, it was it was cool, and um, still go in there. I'm a good customer. My number still works in the computer, so I can check myself out, right? And uh, a couple of my cousins are there now. That's cool. But we looked at and, and talked about uh, perhaps opening another location, and the one thing that I really didn't like about that grind and and as much as i loved the business was the retail side just the hours and, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day it's a retail mm-hmm. business mm-hmm. and um 
and I didn't want to be married to a spot. So I kind of started looking around and got a couple of internships. you wanted to be independent. It, it wasn't so much the – I enjoyed working with my uncles immensely and, right. and uh, learned a, a ton from them and uh, very right. much consider them uh, mentors. Um, but the uh, it, it really being married to a spot, going mm-hmm. and showing up every day, mm-hmm. um, you know, in one – Particular it was location. confining. It was, and I just I did not like the 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 structure and the mm-hmm. grind of retail. Mm-hmm. So, but it sounds like you learned a couple lessons about you're not just selling metal piping or hardware; it's solutions. Oh, that, yeah, or, or yeah, try to get the guy's toilet working again. So. <laughs> right, <laughs> not always elegant. Right, solutions. exactly. So, so is that how you differentiated the hardware store? Meaning, it wasn't just a commodity, you know, well, it, it, um, plumbing yeah, I mean, for your toilet. It's how do you actually fix it? Well, I think it's it's actually why they're still successful today in the you know world of Amazon and Home Depot and the big box stores. One, they're a little bit geographically removed, so it's a 15, 20 minute drive to get to one of the big boxes. But right. two, right. you know, you walk in and someone greets you. What do you need today? They walk you through. They help you, and and the level of service that they provide, you know, okay. relative to, okay. you know, walking into a Home Depot. Nothing against them, especially since I'm sitting in Atlanta. Um, um, but you know, kind of a, a small boutique store, very high service, and uh, uh-huh. and uh, you know, again, they're they're really doing uh, well today, and just completed a big renovation, and uh, so it, it's been fun to watch. So I, what I just picked up on this though is that you're recognizing that there is also a relationship. You oh, know, without with a the doubt, the hardware store, and you know, without people a doubt, greeting you. So that personal touch, that personal communication. Without a doubt, and in, in that community, um, and uh, it's still like this today. Although it's grown, you know, half of the folks who walked through the door you knew by name, or certainly, uh, um, you know, if you didn't know exactly who they were, you knew kind of who they were, and um, and uh, so very much that com- sense of community and and a really good area. Uh huh. So it was fun. That's that's great. Well, so are, are there some common denominators though from your experiences in some of your first jobs and that back to that hardware store meaning you were at mbna you managed advertising jobs mm-hmm. and later at partners first holdings you managed you know the finances of the outsourcing relationship with first data what are there some parallels there with was it customer relationships is it solution selling um I think communication, it, it you know, which probably okay. permeates, you know, any type of sales campaign or, or customer service. Um, I'm often told to shut up and I talk too much and long-winded and those types of things. But I um, – and that's only by my friends and sometimes family, uh-huh. so the folks who really know me. But um, all kidding aside, the uh, – uh, communication. I, I very rarely have ever thought. I've, I don't think I've ever felt I'm the smartest guy in the room. Uh-huh. But if you know, I, I kind of feel like it's my job to facilitate, and um, and that's been probably common. Right. You know, is is how you know do we get from point A to point B with a lot of diverse opinions or, or different opinions? Often, um, you know, what's the common goal here, and and how can I help you know person A relate to person V or vice versa. Right, and it'd be pretty hard, I think, to to sell solutions if you can't communicate. So, well, even if I can communicate, it can still be really hard to sell them. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so um, yeah, it's interesting. So, and yeah. I guess two communications is part of marketing, which you learned without a doubt. Started at uh, MBNA. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of those types of communication lessons? Um, those types. It, it's it's interesting. Um, when I started in the advertising world. Um, 
at MBNA, it was a very heavy direct mail. So they were early on mm-hmm. um, the whole endorsed um, endorsed marketing concept. So they were very early on. I'm a, a graduate of Loyola College, mm-hmm. you know, the Loyola College Alumni Association. So they worked with Loyola to, to provide their list, provide something mm-hmm. nuanced to their uh, mm-hmm. uh, alumni base. And then uh, Loyola enjoyed royalties and a, right. a financial component. Right. MBNA had right. great loyalty, great customer service. Okay. And um, at that point, um, direct mail and the list management was really the, the crux of it. So mm-hmm. it was a multifaceted marketing campaign. They'd go to Loyola, they'd get their list, and um, and did uh, direct mail based on a bunch of different things. So we were looking at response rates and, and uh, does the green envelope get a better response than the white one? And, and so right. um, uh, they certainly were doing things at a scale that there was a lot of um, statistical analysis going on by guys a lot smarter than me. Right. Um, but the... Um, other side of it was uh, the outbound ca- uh, call campaigns. So that was my first call center exposure as well. Okay. So, um, um, in the call center, it, it uh, you know kind of the key performance measures, all those fun things, and um, and and as you well know from your time with debt buyers and collection operations, right. uh, the call center can be a grind as well. It's a it's it a, can be, and the quality of the communication is critical critical to the outcome. Yep. So, but in marketing, it's a different kind of communications. It's also a message. Mm-hmm. Did you get involved in designing some of the messages in the advertising? Or? We did. Um, so, not necessarily on the creative side. It was more the execution and, and okay. how do you take? Um, you know, the the platinum card was the first time. You know, I guess in the evolution of credit cards in, in the late nineties. Uh, this platinum concept was was a new one, and um, so some of the enhanced benefits, the reward points, all those fun things. Um, you know, the loyalty programs that are are um, everywhere today. Um, MBNA was pretty innovative in bringing that to market. So, you know, from a, a, a huge launch for the bank, I, I don't recall. I think they had about a hundred billion in outsta- outstanding um, balances at the time. Mm-hmm. But this drove another twenty-five or thirty percent growth over the next couple of years. It, it really was a significant undertaking um, mm-hmm. and and product launch with a lot of success. And um, so, it, it, at that my role at that time, I was a jun- very junior early in my career. Right. right. Um, but it, it was just really wild to see um you know something done at scale you know direct mail campaigns with uh, you know blanketing the country effectively so we 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 look at communications in a call center and you need technology for that that's how you i guess acquired your interest and uh learning in technology so technology was um so from mbna i i went to work at at a um boutique consultancy called first annapolis they were uh um, a group that was pretty active in the payment card space, so any type of electronic financial right. transaction. Right. They also had an issuer practice or, and did a lot of consulting work with the bigger banks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, credit cards were much more, um, much less consolidated then. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone had a, a credit card portfolio. All the regional banks had had their relationship accounts and, and et cetera. Obviously, over the last fifteen years, we've seen just drastic consolidation and and you know mm-hmm. a real uh, run to the top with uh, with all the acquisitions and the portfolio um in the portfolio world but um first consultancy i I got into that issuing practice and so they contributed our group to the formation of a company called partners first and that was a credit card bank um and we basically managed bank of boston and bank of montreal through a subsidiary in chicago harris bank took all of their relationship commercial or i'm sorry credit card accounts Uh and um and put them into a portfolio so we had about a million active accounts two billion in outstandings and um, 
so we did a securitization, and uh, I had no idea what the heck I was doing at the time, but I little did I know I was right. basically doing some pretty heavy lifting and, and had access to a pretty cool deal. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we funded a couple billion dollar portfolio and um, and then ultimately sold it to Wachovia, also here in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Uh, their credit card operations were at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and uh, so over the course of like literally two years and three days, put the company together and then spun right. it off and sold it. Right. And um, so it was pretty interesting to go through M&A at that time, it was also a kick in the butt when Partners First got sold. Yeah. I needed a job, and right. Um, right. and so it, it was. That was in two thousand. You know, the height of the dot com bubble, right. and everything. And um, there was a group um, in Baltimore called Advertising dot com that had just received a pretty big round of funding, and, right. and was the uh, the wonderkin at the time locally. Uh, one of my buddies had gotten a job there. Okay. I interviewed and started there the next week. Uh huh. So it was, it was uh, you know, different times and, and uh, lots of fun, um, but uh, kind of found myself in the dot-com world, right. which uh, was, was kind of a brave new world, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So, But you were building up a, a nice, pardon the pun again, a portfolio of skills because you were learning about credit card portfolios, technology, call centers, and then let's fast forward to EMC. Mm-hmm. There you were selling data center infrastructure services mm-hmm. to hospitals and law firms. Mm-hmm. So now you're beginning to also build a, a, a knowledge and experience with the whole healthcare system. So I wish I had some like blueprint or grand plan, and I right. intended to go do all this stuff. It was a lot more serendipity and, and kind of luck and, and whatever along the way, meeting good people uh-huh. and um, and um, you know recognizing opportunity. When when I did make the shift to EMC, I had kind of. Um, been through the the dot-com and i was with a a local systems alliance was a local integrator and did application development work and uh but i didn't have a a really a blue chip marquee name on my resume so emc was probably my first Mm -hmm. foray into Mm -hmm. that was probably my first conscious decision that i wanted to go work for a a big name in technology and and try to cut my teeth there and see how i fared so um, emc i did go into i interviewed with them with oracle with um, yep. HP mm-hmm. and um, and I did go. I wanted a, a big name in technology and and very fortunate and had a great career at EMC. So I'm glad that one worked out. Mm-hmm. You call it serendipity, but in reality, when you look at your history, your career history, you are already building experiences in finance and technology and call centers, and it kind of comes together in your years at EMC. Mm-hmm. Um, you have that entrepreneurial instinct and gene, and I think it sounds like you were able to kind of craft your own kind of career path at EMC. It, EMC was an interesting place. What they, um, its culture, um, you know, I think culture and people are interesting. And EMC was a, uh, I've never been a part of an organization that hired so tightly to a culture. Um, and and um, I was sharing with some friends at dinner last night that, uh, um, I could walk into a sales meeting with with a group of the sales guys uh-huh. in Baltimore, Maryland, Atlanta, Georgia, San Diego, California, Chicago, Illinois, and uh, and we were headquartered in Boston. So aside from them all being Red Sox fans, you right. know um, that right. was, made them a little different. Right. But uh, almost to a person, it, it it felt like I was in the same room. Um, they hired um, a lot of young, aggressive um, folks like me. Um, 
and uh, there were a lot of ex-athletes there, and um, and they did not encumber you with a lot of uh, well, very little marketing support actually, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it really was the strongest sales culture I've ever been a part of, okay. and kind of that permeated right all aspects of the organization. So, um, you know, from a compensation perspective, if you were successful, they they paid you well. Um, from a competitive perspective, if you were in a, a, a fight against HP or someone um, on a, a large deal, you could get executive involvement from right. the technical side, from the mm-hmm. corporate side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the they used to say we turn the company upside down. Right. You know, bring all the resources down to the guys in the field, right. and um, and there was not a lot of corporate um, bureaucracy when I was there. Uh-huh. I mean, you could pick up the phone and call anyone. So I uh, had a great experience at EMC, and the culture there really was one of uh, it was a sales led culture, do what's right for the customer, and um, and and they. In in many of my instances, uh, the company always did right and uh, was a great group to work for. And it also sounds like they gave you some some freedom oh. as an account executive to to kind of manage your territory the way you thought was best for your clients. And absolutely, they had their way of doing it. And if if you were hitting numbers and and successful, um, there was. You know, if you put up numbers consistently and were exceeding goals, then um, you you had a lot of autonomy. So uh, I think if uh, you know if when we're struggling, there was certainly some structure there and some proven methodologies that they used. But um, if, if you were successful in your role and uh, your territory was performing where they thought it right. should be, um, you, you had a lot of freedom. So with all those great things about EMC, the culture, um, the autonomy, the fun that you were having, <clears throat> why did you start while you were working there C&E acquisition? So um, we had a friend in the, in the friend of the family who was a collection attorney, and um, and my brother was actually involved at the time. And um, so it was in 2005. I had just gotten married, just uh, started a new job at EMC, and my mm-hmm. brother mm-hmm. was uh, very um, adamant. Come on, we got to start something. We got to do something. And, okay. and candidly, uh, from an ambition and entrepreneurism, he had just come back from. Um, uh, he went to Penn State, spent a couple of years at J.P. Morgan on Wall Street, okay. and then come back to Maryland. Um, and. Uh, and Patrick really was the one who wanted to get this thing going. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I said, I just started a new job. I've got a new wife. Like, this is uh, not the time. And he said, right. when are we going to do right. it? So, oh, <clears throat> excuse me. We had that uh, friend of the family who's a collection attorney. And Patrick said, look, you know, this gentleman seems to do okay. You know, he, he works pretty, you know, loose schedule. Maybe there's something to this. Right. So um, this gentleman did uh, kind of guide us through our debt, first debt purchase. He was mm-hmm. a state buyer locally mm-hmm. and um, said, you know, hey, go go uh, out and do mm-hmm. it somewhere else. He made a couple of introductions, mm-hmm. helped us get our first portfolio, find someone to, to service it. And that was in early 2005. Mm-hmm. So um, fast forward to 2008 and uh and that's when uh i guess i started working with my current partners in 06 right and uh and uh you know the buys get a little bigger a little bit different strategies not necessarily a local right. uh, legal model in one jurisdiction we were buying national portfolios of hsbc at the time albeit relatively small ones uh-huh. and um and so it really uh you know kind of again not by design but just by opportunity and necessity um you know we we kind of grew the the operations then we grew the financing capacity then we grew Mm -hmm. you know kind of right so you were buying hsbc but also i thought that you 
I think some of your first portfolios were in the healthcare space and hospitals, right? They were. We early on, and and, and why why did you choose that? So when I was in technology, the um, the I covered by the time I left, I had seven accounts, and they were right. law firms or litigation support companies and hospitals, and. Um, doesn't really sound a whole lot alike, but there were actually a lot of similarities. So one was the whole privacy issue, uh-huh. and um, and really understanding you know patient data or client data, right. um, you know very much both protected classes of data. So the the privacy and integrity issues that were there. Right. Two, um, you know, healthcare kind of vital, and um, and uh, everyone needs their health information mm-hmm. in the technology industry. Hurricane Katrina and the devastation that happened in New Orleans was um, really kind of a, a um, seminal moment where the the tide turned. And mm-hmm. hospitals got it. Mm-hmm. So you've had all these technology companies trying to sell bedside documentation okay. and computerized physician order entry for forever. Okay, and folks were kind of you know halfway along or, or implementing little bits and pieces. Well, when you had a, a wholesale destruction like that, and all these patchwork systems right. uh, were at varying stages of maturity, right. and none of them had uh, redundancy or some of the the, um, uh, the business continuity um, right. that that really they required, right. uh, it really was kind of a kick in the butt to that industry. And, okay. and so you saw much more adoption after that, which was a great time to be selling hardware to right. support that. Right. Um, but. Um, um, so uh, with healthcare, um, and and similarly the legal world, you know, big big business litigation. You know, I, I will right. go to my grave saying we care a hell of a lot more about our money than we do our health, right? Uh, because um, ironically, the the legal world and those folks had invested in all the dr and business continuity and and right. much more mature in their systems um, than right. healthcare was. Right. So um, anyway, I, I kind of straddled the two. I had a, a book of you know small book of um, some key accounts and. Okay. Uh, and really had a lot of fun there. And so then, uh, when did you become completely independent from EMC? And and then is that when you also then partnered with Diverse? So we, um, yeah. So I, I came out of EMC officially in 2012. I've been working with uh, oh, okay. my partners at Diverse, Dan Mendez, Larry Shavi, Neil Walsh, mm-hmm. um, since 2006. They had invested with you in these and portfolios. We had co-invested, yeah. and, and Dan was really uh, running the servicing operation uh-huh. at that time. So, um, to varying degrees, we have been working together since 2006. In 2008, we we raised our first outside money together. And then in 2012, was that before the crash, after that the was crash? Uh, kind of in the midst of it. So we, okay. we um, so that capital supplied us through the crash, and and, right. um, and uh, you know in hindsight, it, it, well, I would have loved to raise a hell of a lot more and really doubled down. Uh-huh. Um, um, and uh, that was a good time to make hay, but uh, um, it uh, we we were pretty conservative with how we had grown it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a lot of guys, and and you know one of the reasons we enjoy our our financing with with your group. Is the elasticity? We've seen a lot of guys really go out, raise money. They're under pressure to produce returns, and they start making bad bad buys just to put money to work. Right, and that's something that that I'd like to think we've had the discipline to avoid. Yeah, that's obviously critical in this industry. Um, so, what what is it about diverse and their team and their culture <clears throat> that kind of attracted you? I mean, obviously they had money initially, and that mm-hmm. was critical to the relationship but but beyond that uh for you to give up your independence and you you, we started out this interview talking Mm -hmm. about your entrepreneurial genes in your family and the fact that you like to be independent but then when you sold cne to diverse you're giving up some independence aren't you and how how does that gel um it it 
didn't feel that way. And, um, you know, I, I'd like to think it, it was an example of, you know, one plus one plus one plus one equals five or six. Um, so w- among the partnership, Dan is our CEO and our, our, um, our uh, majority owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and really in my career, uh, uh, a unique and, and um, talented guy. I mean, a top five guy that I've ever had the pleasure of, of working with and for. And um, so Dan... Um, you know, I think he, he makes all of us better. And, uh-huh. um, and so, um, you know, I guess balancing that independence with a little bit of security right. of, um, of uh, having some smart guys around you. Being part of a bigger team. Being part of the bigger team. Um, and, and certainly Larry and Neil, um, uh, also really talented guys uh, in their own right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to Dan's credit, as the company has grown, really he's, uh, he's um, turned over a lot of the trust, a lot of the, and really empowered Larry, Neil, myself right. to do our various roles. So the partnership works, um, not because we're all the same. You know, right. we're, we're, our skill sets, I think, are pretty complimentary. Right. Larry and I do a lot of the talking and, and yep. dealing with the outside stuff. Yep. Uh, Neil and Dan, more the operators. Yep. And um, so recognizing that other guys have other skills and other passions that, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. aren't necessarily the same, but certainly complementary to mine. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if a couple of those guys happen to be a hell of a lot smarter than you, mm-hmm. that that doesn't hurt either. So uh, it's been a good it's been a good run. And and um, you know, and and the one thing back to your earlier comment about communication, you know, the one thing that I enjoy, um, you know, we we are always treated like partners, and um, and you know that really comes from Dan. Right. So it, it's. Uh, you know, free to say and, and behind closed doors, you know, we don't necessarily have to agree. Yep. And, um, you know, we can be candid, we can be direct. And I think that's what makes it work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and once we make a collective decision, then, right. you know, we live with it. Some of them have been good. Mm-hmm. We've had a couple of stupid ones, but. Have there been any moments, though, with this journey with Diverse, with Dan, Larry, and the team there, that you worried that you weren't going to succeed and that you could fail? No. Um, never a, a failure, just a um, um, with the ebbs and flows in our industry, you see what the returns can look like when life is good. Right. And, and you know, certainly maybe some frustration there when right. life is bad. Right. And, um, but you started this thing in the middle of the crash, which is kind of gutsy. Well, I guess we started the. Uh, but maybe the smart. In a uh, yeah, and uh, we we yeah we formalized it. I guess we had been at it for a little while, and certainly had some of the the key components of the working relationship down. But it was really looking for that financing in '08 in the middle of the crash that that was the genesis of CNE. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, uh, you know, recognizing an opportunity. I would say we're probably a little contrarian. And, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, when everyone else is running for the exits, you should probably be looking around to see what they're, you know, we can pick through. Right. Um, so that, uh, you know, and, and again, not divine strategy, just, uh, right. you know, we like to go where others don't. But initially your focus, I mean, you were in healthcare and hospital mm-hmm. systems. You did buy an HSBC portfolio yep. early on, but. Healthcare was really your focus at CNE, and now at Diverse, that's not as much of a. So, t- talk, tell our listeners your your outlook uh, for healthcare and why that seems to be taking longer to develop okay. as a debt buying segment. Yeah, so so Diverse being the parent company, and uh, we buy all of our consumer assets and, and consumer debts through Diverse. We go to market as CNE Acquisition Group in the healthcare market. So, uh, two distinct entities, two sources of financing, right. and um, and you know CNE really you know hones its message and and you know the 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 
reverse sale, I'll call it, to the hospital to in, um, earn their trust and, and mm-hmm. be able to transact business with them. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit unique. I've never worked so hard in, in my career to give money away. Mm-hmm. But when we go to the average hospital CFO and say, hey, we'll buy your pool of outstanding receivables, right. you know, I can cut you a check for a million bucks tomorrow. Right. And they look at you and say, well, why would I do that? Uh-huh. And, um, and uh, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting time in, in, I think, our evolution. Certainly the um, – at the national level, you know, you can't have any debate on a national level that doesn't include some component of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, pragmatically, what I think and what I've seen over the last several years and what it means to, to you know, um, Main Street USA are higher deductibles. And so, for a long time, we've had hospitals who have absolutely optimized and spent lots of money on revenue cycle management. And at the end of the day, what that really means is they've optimized themselves to get paid by the big third parties. Okay. That can be Blue Cross, that can be Medicare, that can be Medicaid. Right. Every dollar, every innovation, every piece of technology was to streamline those payment processes and enhance that revenue cycle. Mm-hmm. What they didn't do, or or didn't do well in many cases, and and I'm um, I'm being a little critical here, and and this is based on experience. Um, But hospitals didn't really focus on the patient element. All of their money was coming from the big third-party payers to the right. extent that they were collecting copays and deductibles from, mm-hmm. from the actual patient in the, in the building. Mm-hmm. Was, it was the cherry on top of the whipped cream on top of the hot fudge to make the sundae and, right. and very incremental to their overall picture. Okay. Well, in the midst of all this, uh, with the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, I've heard it called the Unaffordable Deductible Act, and, okay. and it's really pushed a lot of that first, you know, be it three to five thousand dollars a year of medical expense mm-hmm. onto the individual consumer. So, indirectly, it forced the hospital now to go collect that mm-hmm. first three to five thousand dollars of medical mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. from the consumer. Mm-hmm. The last decade, they've been focused on the big third-party payers. Right. They haven't been doing scoring models. They haven't been, you know, effectively, they're now banks. They're extending right. credit. Right. You know, not necessarily credit, but it's a fee-for-service offering. And uh, they have no clue the credit quality of the person who walks through the door. Right. So um, we've seen a lot of variation in, in different hospitals um, as to how sophisticated they are when Mike Boyle walks through the door or Michael Flock walks in right. um, uh, with um, pre-authorization. So you're there for a service. Uh, my daughter um, is is uh, this was several years ago, but we walk in and my kids have all had issues with ear infections. So I think uh, we've been through five or six sets of tug- tubes among the three kids. Uh-huh. They've typically been done in a surgical center, no problem. Well, one year my daughter was getting her second or third set. Surgical center had a pipe burst. The place was closed down, so we had to go to the hospital. Right. So we walk into the hospital. You know, I got my two-year-old there. We're the first appointment because she's young. She hasn't eaten. Mom's upset because she hasn't eaten. I'm upset because I'm putting my kid on the you know operating mm-hmm. table at eight seven o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, we go check in, and right. they look at me and they say, "It'll be three hundred eighty-seven dollars." And I said, "Okay." No problem. And they said, no, it'll be 387, you know, send me the bill like you always do. No, sir. It'll be $387 cash, check or credit card. She isn't going back there unless you, uh, unless you pay now. Right. Right. Okay. You know, here's my credit card. So, um, but not only was that, and that was St. Joseph's Medical Center in, in Towson, Maryland. Um, but they pre-authorized my card. 
they were, I'm sorry, our insurance coverage, determine what our facility eligibility was and all the charges. Right. And uh, actually a pretty early adopter to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So they no longer were in the credit business. They were in the pay-to-play business right. and uh, pretty rigid, you know, right out of the gate there. Um, so I offer that as an example of how hospitals now are um, um, really understanding what's going to be due from the patient and right. having that conversation up front. Right. I still think we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, comparison shopping is a joke. And um, um, meaning, you know, healthcare, I needed a prescription for my daughter. At Walmart, it was 6 bucks. At CVS next to my office, it was right. $86. Right. And for the same thing. And, um, and until... I think there's more transparency. I think we're going to struggle with this a little bit. But um, um, from a healthcare perspective, it, it, normal business practices don't yet apply, I think, because there are so many different inter- intermediaries in between right. you as a doctor and me as a patient. But what's interesting, Mike, about this conversation with you is that you are searching I can, in mm-hmm. your mind for solutions to patient care. Just as when you were at the hardware store mm-hmm. as a kid, you're not just selling pipes. You're selling a solution, how to fix your toilet. Yep. Now with you're in, in hospital systems, you're trying to to marry, I think, a, a debt-buying solution or how it can help in their management of the whole patient care process. So we, um, so the, the other indirect outcome of all this is a lot of the hospitals are struggling financially. And, um, and uh, so we're, we're seeing some consolidation. We're seeing bankruptcies. We're seeing right. lots of carnage in, in the right. healthcare provider space. And so what we offer at the end of the day is liquidity and, and money. So you're sitting on assets that are not being right. um, managed well today. Right. We'll buy those from you, right. release them from you, and give you an infusion of liquidity. Yep. You know, we'll cut you a check for a million bucks. Go invest in that point of care system that you right. can do that, that validation. Right. And we often tell CFOs, look, we'd love to work ourselves out of a job with you over the next three to four years. Yep. You know, give us the opportunity. Let us inject some capital yep. into your organization and, and, and work us out. Mm-hmm. Get more sophisticated. Buy mm-hmm. the systems you know you need. So, um, you know, where we are successful, those are often the use of funds, our, our, uh, those front-end systems, um, insurance verification, et cetera. Right. So wrapping things up, yep. uh, what, what's your outlook for diverse in the industry? And, and as you craft the vision with your partners, mm-hmm. how does the future look for your company and for you personally? So um, I, we're bullish on the industry, and um, we, we feel that the regulatory um, environment is more favorable today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it overcorrected and, and mm-hmm. was due for a correction, but I think um, – um, you know, through 2016, it, it really was was restrictive, and um, today, um, I, I think it's it's more appropriate. We see some barriers to entry. Right. Um, not just any anyone can start being a debt buyer. Right. The licensing and um, and bonding requirements now to do so at a national level are, right. are really have some teeth. Right. Um, so we like it. We feel that um, um, you know. Consumer credit is is back to record highs. Yep. You know the economy slows down. There's going to be purchasing opportunities. At the end of the day, we feel our job is to provide liquidity back into that system, and um, and that's kind of fun. To, you know, philosophically, uh, uh, how we rationalize this and and feel mm-hmm. good about it, mm-hmm. and um, and so. Um, with a correction, we see opportunity for purchasing. Um, we collect, and, and compliance and consumer friendliness are, are two key priorities of ours. We we want to be very good guys yep. in what is often looked at as a as an ugly business, and mm-hmm. um, 
And, uh, you know, and that, that's really a key strategy to our collection is, is treating consumers regardless of their situation, you know, like real people with real problems and how do we help them get right. out of those problems. Right. Um, and, uh, and that served us well. Right. So, so we're bullish. We like it. Um, uh, we like it. The one challenge that we have is the consolidation just uh, in the banking world. Um, yep. So much of consumer credit is tied to so few issuers mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and particularly on the card side. Mm-hmm. But now um, there's online lending. So doesn't that <clears throat> provide it, a new channel? It does. Credit? And and that's certainly been an area that we've been doing some exploring. Right. Um, and um, and although exciting and although growing, it, it, it's uh, it is a neophyte compared to. I mean, it, it's right. a you know it, right. it's a cork in the bathtub right. relative to traditional uh, um, traditional consumer credit. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, from a scale perspective and those things, um, um, they're growing, they're exciting, and and uh, it's mm-hmm. certainly some innovative models out there right. that, that we like. Um, but uh, but from a scale perspective, the the big banks you aren't going to get away from them anytime soon. Right. Well, Mike, you you certainly have a, a great past in your future. You've got at least another, what, 20, 30 years of entrepreneurial endeavors uh, in your future. How do you want to be remembered, though? Oops. I mean, you, you're a single father. You've got three wonderful kids. Yep. Uh, you've built a wonderful business. You've got some great partners. What do you want to be remembered for? So um, I uh – no, my kids, I think, are the, you know, I look at them, and, and uh, that's certainly, you know, regardless of anything that I've done, um, without a doubt, my biggest point of pride. And, uh, you know, you want to you wanna make my day, tell me something nice about my kids. Um, and my oldest, Kinley, is in seventh grade, starting to look at high schools. My middle one, Mikey, is um, is 10 years old. He went to a field trip yesterday at the Naval Academy, and um, and pretty gifted at this point seems to be a pretty talented athlete and um and then my youngest delaney is seven and she is the life of the party she's got more personality in that little body than uh (laughs) than they should give out and Uh anyone should be allowed to have so you know i don't um you know how to be remembered that's a tough one uh you know as long as those three people um speak well about their dad (laughs) it uh you know i think i would have been successful well, thanks, Mike, for your, your time today. Uh, you've got a wonderful story, uh, actually a diverse, pardon the pun, yep. career, combining finance, technology, sales, and cum- culminating today in a significant leadership role in one of the fastest-growing debt buyers in our industry. And in fact, when I look back at your career so far, and you look at the skill sets necessary to be successful in debt buying, you know, it's finance, technology, and sales, all of which you've had. They mm-hmm. all intersect. And these are critical ingredients for uh, any executive in underwriting, raising capital, analyzing data, uh, systems, and, of course, selling your brand with creditors and, and capital sources. Uh, you've developed all these skills, and I compliment and congratulate you on your achievements. Um, are there any kind of parting words of wisdom for our listeners here as we, uh, again, navigate these exciting times in the debt buying industry? No, um, I certainly thank you for listening, and, and uh, certainly appreciate Flox partnership. Um, you know, I guess we—if uh, I didn't give the disclaimer—we are a client, so um, we appreciate your support of our growth, and uh, and the team that that um, supports us. You, Greg, Damon, uh, John, and team, and um, you, you can't. No one does anything alone, so we appreciate that support, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So, uh, um, uh, just glad to be here, and, and thanks for the, for having me. Well, Mike, uh, thank you for sharing your lessons learned over your 
a couple decades here in your career, and I think the other common denominator I want to underscore is you've talked about relationships Mm -hmm. and how important they are, whether it was at the hardware store and now at Diverse, and you you clearly have demonstrated – uh, how that can grow your business and be very fulfilling personally. So it, it, it's uh, yeah, that has served me well. And and uh, I'll leave you with this: my grandfather, the car the car guy, was um, it, it, one of his uh, most consistent sayings was never judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. Well, we don't have too many Indians around us, but uh, so I don't know where he got the moccasins. But he always had empathy. And um, and uh, and the other thing at, at his funeral, I looked around and and you know most of the folks in that room I had known my entire life. And, and I was fortunate enough, he, I was 36 when he died. But, um, you know, the value of the relationship, he did not turn friends over. He and my grandmother were married for 58 or 62 years or something. And, um, and um, you know, and uh, that relationship piece is it. And uh, so I take a lot of pride in, you know, mm-hmm. have the same friends and, and uh, you know, don't let a, don't, uh, I, I don't think, I don't know, I guess I'm not real transient in that way. So I'll credit that one to my grandfather. Well, those are very wise words indeed. In fact, with lessons maybe for some of our politicians today, <laughs> don't judge anybody yeah. until you've walked in their moccasins. So. Exactly. You, you want to get me going on that? Yeah, no, a yeah, couple let's, more hours. Let's, let's so. end here. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, you have a great day, and thank you, Michael. Mike, thank you so much for your friendship and your business. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.